The scripture reading for today comes from Hebrews 11, verse 21, and Genesis 48, verses 8 through 20. By faith, Jacob, when dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph, bowing in worship over the head of his staff. Genesis 48. When Israel saw Joseph's sons, he said, Who are these? Joseph said to his father, They are my sons whom God has given me here. And he said, Bring them to me, please, that I may bless them. Now the eyes of Israel were dim with age so that he could not see. So Joseph brought them near him, and he kissed them and embraced them. And Israel said to Joseph, I never expected to see your face. And behold, God has let me see your offspring also. Then Joseph removed them from his knees, and he bowed himself with his face to the earth. And Joseph took them both, Ephraim in his right hand toward Israel's left hand, and Manasseh in his left hand toward Israel's right hand, and brought them near him. And Israel stretched out his right hand and laid it on the head of Ephraim, who was the younger, and his left hand on the head of Manasseh, crossing his hands, for Manasseh was the firstborn. And he blessed Joseph And said, the God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked, the God who has been my shepherd all my life long to this day, the angel who has redeemed me from all evil, bless the boys, and in them let my name be carried on, and the name of my fathers Abraham and Isaac, and let them grow into a multitude in the midst of the earth. When Joseph saw that his father laid his right hand on the head of Ephraim, it displeased him. And he took his father's hand to move it from Ephraim's head to Manasseh's head. And Joseph said to his father, Not this way, my father, since this one is the firstborn. Put your right hand on his head. But his father refused and said, I know, my son, I know. He also shall become a people, and he also shall be great. Nevertheless, his younger brother shall be greater than he, and his offspring shall become a multitude of nations. So he blessed them that day, saying, By you, Israel, will pronounce blessings, saying, God make you as Ephraim and as Manasseh. Thus he put Ephraim before Manasseh. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of our God endures forever. You can be seated. Good morning again and welcome to New Life Fremont. My name is Kevin. If I haven't had a chance to meet you yet, it's good to be with you. After uh, taking a week off from uh, the By Faith sermon series and listening to Brad's awesome sermon on putting on the new self, we're jumping back into the By Faith series. And every week what we have been trying to do is uh, take a look at one of the Old Testament saints that's mentioned in Hebrews 11 and consider their faith, consider our own faith, and then always look to the perfecter of our faith, Jesus. And this week we're going to be looking at Jacob. Now, if I asked you, to guess which story of Jacob would be mentioned in Hebrews 11, I can pretty much guarantee it would not be this one. Maybe stories like trading Esau's soup for his birthright, or tricking Isaac into blessing him, or working for seven years to marry the wrong sister, and then working seven more to marry the right sister, or wrestling with God, right? Like, those are the stories that we are familiar with in Jacob's life. But Hebrews 11 is like, nope, not those stories mainly because in most of them, Jacob actually doesn't demonstrate faith at all. And so instead, Hebrews mentions this seemingly obscure story about Jacob and how at the end of Jacob's life, he blessed 
the sons of Joseph. So what's the big deal about this story? We're going to dive a little bit deeper into that, and uh, we actually will talk about some of those earlier and better-known stories in Jacob's life, because you need to, to fully understand how we get to Genesis 48. We need that full context. And so we're going to dive a bit deeper, and as we do, we'll have three points. The first is deceiving. The second is striving. And the third is giving. And so uh, deceiving, we'll talk a little bit about uh, deceiving Isaac to steal the blessing. Striving, we'll talk a little bit about uh, Jacob wrestling with God. And then giving, we'll return back to this Genesis 48 passage to better understand it. So let's begin with our first point, deceiving. Uh, Have any of you seen the documentary Icarus? Uh, If you haven't, I highly recommend it. It's fascinating. It's on Netflix. It actually won the Oscar for Best Documentary Feature in 2017. And the documentary starts out following an amateur cyclist, uh, Brian Fogel, who's also actually the director of the documentary. And it follows Brian and his amateur cycling as he tries to see how hard it would be to get away with doping. Uh, Because Brian is pretty sure that the way the athletes are currently tested Uh, for drugs, is insufficient. And so he hires this Russian scientist named Grigory Rodchenkov, who was the director of Russia's uh, National Anti-Doping Lab. And he brings him in to help him develop a protocol for taking banned performance-enhancing drugs in a way that will allow him to avoid detection. It'll allow him to uh, pass these drug tests. He's essentially trying to see if he can develop a protocol that will deceive drug testers, deceive anti-doping agencies, and essentially deceive the entire cycling world. And it turns out that Grigory is actually the perfect person to hire to do this. And I won't say more because you should watch the documentary. Uh, it gets even crazier. Uh, but needless to say, Grigory knows exactly what it will take to deceive the drug testers. He's a master deceiver. In Genesis, our main character today, Jacob, is also a master deceiver. And uh, if you're unfamiliar with the background, so Jacob is uh, Isaac's son. Isaac was Abraham's son. Isaac marries Rebekah, and then Isaac and Rebekah together have two sons, Jacob and Esau. Except that I should really say Esau and Jacob, because Esau is the older brother. They're twins, but Esau was born first. Um, But right before these two sons were born to Isaac and Rebekah, God says this to Rebekah in Genesis 25. uh, Genesis 25, 23. God tells Rebekah, two nations are in your womb and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other. The older shall serve the younger. That's important, okay? Normally, the younger would serve the older. The older would get the birthright. The older would get a double portion of the inheritance. The older would get the blessing. But God says to Rebecca, no, the older shall serve the younger. The younger brother will be in the place of prominence. And Rebecca gives birth. Esau is born. He's the older brother. And then Jacob is born. He is the younger brother. And Jacob, Genesis says, is born holding on to Esau's heel. 
And that's actually what Jacob's name means, to grab by the heel, which in Hebrew is a euphemism for cheating, deceiving. And as we'll see, Jacob is a cheater and a deceiver. It's in his name. But it's also important to notice that Jacob is not the only uh, one with a significant character flaw in his family. Uh, Jacob's entire family is super messed up as well. There's favoritism. You know, so Isaac, the father, has a favorite son. It's Esau. Rebecca, the mother, has a favorite son. It's Jacob. And so there's favoritism in their family. Esau, uh, he's all about instant gratification. He infamously sells his birthright to Jacob in a trade for some stew. You know, he's so driven for instant gratification that he sells his birthright for a single meal. I mean, how short-sighted is that? That would be like selling your college savings account for lunch after church. But that's Esau. All about instant gratification. Sells his birthright for lentil stew. Lentil stew. It's not even a meat stew. It's a vegan stew. It's just sad. Uh, Isaac, the father, even though God had said that the younger son would have the place of importance, not the older, Isaac still intends to follow the cultural norm rather than God's will and bless the older son. And so, At the end of Isaac's life, he sends Esau out to hunt to bring back some food for Isaac. And Isaac tells him, when you get back, I'm going to bless you. Even though God said that the younger would be in the place of prominence, I'm going to bless you, my older son. And so Isaac is going against the will of God. And Esau apparently intends to receive that blessing. Even though he already sold his right to it away, uh, he still goes out into the field to hunt game, fully intending to come back and take that blessing that he sold his right to away. Rebecca, the mother, because she favors Jacob, uh, she doesn't try to tell Isaac to bless Jacob because of what God said to do. Instead, she helps Jacob to trick and deceive and cheat. She gets him to deceive Isaac, an elderly and blind man at this point, so that Jacob can steal the blessing. She makes food for Jacob to take to Isaac, Uh, She puts Esau's clothes and sheepskin on Jacob so that when he goes in to meet with Isaac, he seems like he's Esau. I mean, everyone is in trouble in this family. Their family is a disaster. Isaac, Rebecca, Esau, all of them. And of course, finally, Jacob. Jacob is a disaster too. Jacob's deception, especially. He lies to his elderly and blind father, about as low as it gets. And he walks in to see his father, and Isaac asks him, who are you? And Jacob lies, I am Esau, your firstborn. Then Isaac asks another question, how did you find game so quickly? Jacob answers, the Lord your God granted me success. Which, yikes, if you ever wondered what it means to take the Lord's name in vain, that's what it looks like invoking his name as a part of your lie and deception. Isaac asks him to come closer so that he can feel him, and he feels that his hands are hairy and is convinced that it's Esau, and he blesses him. He says, May God give you of the dew of heaven, of the fatness of the earth, plenty of grain and wine. Let people serve you, nations bow down to you. Be Lord over your brothers. May your mother's sons bow down to you. Cursed be anyone who curses you, and blessed be everyone who blesses you. The blessing that God gave to Abraham Abraham, now passed through Isaac down to Jacob. And it's final. 
There's no undoing it. What's done is done. Jacob deceives Isaac and comes away with blessing. What are we to make of this story? Two takeaways. One, it's important to remember that the ends do not justify the means. It would be tempting to say, after reading the story, well, God intended to give Jacob the blessing anyway, and not Esau. That's what he told Rebekah before they were born. So everything that happened is totally good, because the ending was what God wanted. That's a really naive and simplistic reading of the story. If you read beyond the story, you'll see that this moment is a catalyst for all sorts of negative consequences and further disintegration in the family. You know, Esau and Jacob eventually take on, essentially they take on like a Cain and Abel type relationship where Esau wants to kill Jacob. And so because of that, Jacob has to flee away from his family and from the promised land. And uh, as he does, he faces all sorts of other problems, like being tricked into working for 14 years to marry the daughters of Laban. Uh, Rebecca, you know, who favored Jacob and got him this blessing, because of that, Jacob actually has to leave her presence, and she never sees him again. Like, that's not what you want for your favorite son, to never see him again, right? And in fact, Genesis actually doesn't even memorialize Rebecca's death like it does the other wives of the patriarchs, a, a subtle judgment on her actions. So the point is, any careful reader of these stories should not conclude that the ends justified the means. The favoritism, the rivalry, the deception, the stubbornness are all clearly judged as wrong and lead to consequences for the family. The ends do not justify the means. We don't know how, but God would have ensured that the blessing went to Jacob without all of this deception. And this is something that I think is really important for us to let truly sink in. Because we live in a day and age and culture where the general ethic is pragmatism. The right thing to do is what gets the job done. If it works, do it. But that's totally antithetical to the gospel and Christianity. To accomplish a desirable end through sinful means is sinful. If you can't accomplish a good end without sinning, then you can't accomplish that good end. You need to find some other way. Like, it would be good to bring your non-believing neighbor to church, right? That would be a good end if we can all agree on that. If, If you can invite someone, bring them here who doesn't know the Lord, please do that. I encourage you to do that. But you should not tell them that you're taking them out to brunch and then roll up to church instead, right? You shouldn't lie to them to get them to come to church because the ends do not justify the means. It's the first takeaway from this whole Jacob saga. Second takeaway for us. God works sovereignly even through human wickedness. This messed up family is not so messed up that they can thwart God's sovereign will. The promises of God, the blessings of God, they're going forward no matter what. Which should be an encouragement for us. Like if you look back on your life and you have serious regrets, you can take heart. Your past mistakes are not so bad that God's sovereign will won't be accomplished. In fact, if if you're in Christ, Romans 8 promises that everything, even your past regrets, will actually be for your good somehow. 
That's how powerful, that's how good God is. He transforms our wickedness into our good. Our wickedness won't stop his plan. Our wickedness won't even stop him from being good to us. We even see a similar dynamic in the New Testament. You know, God uses Judas's horrific betrayal to accomplish his will in sending Jesus to the cross to die and atone for sins. You know, God's sovereign will is still accomplished through Judas's wickedness. The most significant and important and gracious and merciful moment in history was accomplished through a massive betrayal. You know, God's grace always finds a way to persist through human wickedness. And so you can take heart. Though you've probably done wicked things, though you will probably do more wicked things, you're not so powerful that you can thwart God's plans or his goodness. Now, one potential misunderstanding on this takeaway, that God works sovereignly even through your wickedness, one potential misunderstanding is uh, that you might, you might plan your future wickedness based on this truth. And that's not right. This truth is meant to be a great comfort when you look back at your wickedness. When you feel guilt, shame, embarrassment, despair, you know, whatever, over your past mistakes, take hope in that God works sovereignly even through your wickedness. But don't use this truth to plan your future wickedness. If, if you look forward and you're thinking about doing something wicked, thinking about doing something that you know violates God's word, and you say to yourself, it's okay, God will work sovereignly through my wickedness, for my good, somehow. Though it's a sin I'm about to commit, God will use this wicked thing uh, for the good of those who love him. If you're thinking that way, to plan your future wickedness, and I, I don't say this lightly, you might not be a Christian. You might not have saving faith. Because that verse in Romans 8, it says, for those who love God, all things work together for good. That's a promise for people who love God. You do not love him if you're consistently planning future wicked actions, presupposing upon his grace. Jesus says in John 14 15, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. So those who love God are those who keep his commandments. At the very least, they're people who want to keep his commandments. If you don't keep his commandments, if you don't even want to keep his commandments, you might not love him. So again, the fact that God works sovereignly through our wickedness is a comfort looking back at things we regret. It's not an excuse to plan our future wickedness. But you can take heart when you look back at your past wickedness. God works sovereignly through your wickedness. You are not powerful enough to thwart God's plan, to thwart his goodness. You can take heart in that as you look back at your past wickedness. God works sovereignly even through human wickedness. Let's move on now and uh, continue tracking with Jacob's story and our second point, striving. You know, growing up, uh, my dad and I would often play a game on our driveway called Horse. Uh, if you're not familiar with horse, it's a basketball game. Um, we had a basketball hoop on our driveway. And the way it works is if one person makes a shot, and the other person has to make the same shot. And if they miss, then they get a letter from the word horse. H for your first miss, O for your second, and so on. And if you spell out horse, you lose. And you know, when I was a kid, my dad was obviously better 
at basketball than I was. But sometimes I would win. But I suspect that early on, most of those wins came because my dad would let me win. He could have beat me, but maybe he decided to intentionally brick a few shots so that I could win. And so that I I would win, but I didn't win because of my own skill or strength. I won because of my dad's grace and mercy. At another crucial moment in Jacob's life, he experiences something similar, except it's not playing horse with his dad. It's a wrestling match with God. And we read about it in Genesis 32. And so it's been a while since Jacob had to flee from Esau, flee from his parents, flee from the promised land, and he's had a lot of troubles. Uh, But he's also strived a ton, and he's actually eventually become somewhat of a success in life. For all the adversity that he's faced because of his own wicked actions, he's strived and overcome many of them. He did get the birthright from Esau. He did get the blessing from Isaac. He worked seven years for Laban to get his daughter in marriage. And when Laban gave him the daughter he didn't want, he worked for seven more to get the one that he did. And then later, despite Laban's attempt to cheat Jacob out of paying him what he was owed, Jacob manages to get away with a small fortune. And so Jacob is a self-made man now. When one obstacle arises, he always seems to overcome He has made a lot happen for himself. I mean, he's like the entrepreneur whose startup is now a worldwide brand. He's like the church planter who now leads a multi-site megachurch. But there are two problems for Jacob. The first is that he's gone about making himself into a success in a lot of deceitful and wicked ways. Not too different than some Silicon Valley companies that used to be startup, not too different than some megachurches that used to be living room Bible studies. But second, he's still not satisfied. It's not enough for Jacob. He's still missing something. He's still not back in the promised land. And even though he deceived his father into giving it to him, he's still not experiencing God's blessing in his life for all of his striving, for all it took for him to become independent, for all that it took to become the self-made man that he is, it's not enough for Jacob. It's at this point that he has an encounter with God. He's all alone one night when suddenly a man begins to wrestle with Jacob. And of course, we find out that it's actually God wrestling with Jacob, but Jacob doesn't know that at first. And so he wrestles with this mysterious person all night long, and Jacob strives. He doesn't give up. He's never given up at getting what he wants his entire life, and he's not going to give up now in this wrestling match. And it eventually gets to the point where God, noticing that Jacob is never going to give up, God touches Jacob's hip socket, and his hip is pulled out of joint. It's so bad, in fact, that Jacob walks with a limp afterward. But apparently... Even with his hip out of socket, Jacob still persists. He's still holding on to God. And so God says to Jacob, let me go, for the day is broken. But Jacob replies, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And so God asks him, what is your name? Jacob says, Jacob. Do you see what's happening here? God has pushed Jacob to his limit. You know, with men, God or Jacob could strive and strive and strive and eventually get what he wanted. 
but not with God. God took Jacob to the point where he could not get what he wanted unless God chose to give it to him, right? Like, you only survive a wrestling match with God if God lets you. You Jacob lived his whole life as if he was God, and God showed him that he was not God. But notably, God didn't do this by destroying him, but by being gracious to him. You wrestled God. You should be dead, but I am letting you live. And so Jacob clings to God and asks for a blessing. But before God will give it to him, he asks him his name. What's your name? Jacob. And you remember what Jacob means, right? Cheater, deceiver. What's your name? Cheater, deceiver. God is making him own up to how he has lived his entire life as a cheater, as a deceiver. And it's only then, when he's acknowledged his wickedness, he's acknowledged his cheating and deceiving ways to God, it's then and only then that God blesses him. Genesis thirty-two twenty-eight. Then he said, Your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel, for you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. God renames him. God gives him a new name. You're no longer going to be known as cheater and deceiver, as one who prevailed with men through lies and deception. You're going to be known as Israel. You're going to be known as one who prevailed with God, not by manipulation, but as one with a limp, who acknowledged his helplessness and in his desperation clung to God and begged for a blessing. Your name's no longer going to be Jacob. Your name is now Israel. And so with a new name and with God's blessing, Jacob was eventually on his way back to the promised land, but making his way there with a limp now. Do you see that that's how the story of every Christian, right? Every Christian has been renamed, blessed, and is limping toward the promised land. Jacob's story is a good reminder for all of us. Independent, self-sufficient people don't enter the promised land. Only those who rely on God, only those who admit their need, receive God's blessing. Have you admitted your need lately? Have you reminded yourself of your need lately? Have you cried out to God for something that you need lately? Because it's easy to forget. It's easy to forget our need, especially in Silicon Valley. We love to be independent. We love to be self-sufficient. We love to pretend that we don't need anything from anyone. I mean, essentially, Silicon Valley unofficial vision for the world is that no one would need their community. And there can be, you know, good things that do flow from Silicon Valley, but at the end of the day, we are needy people. We were made for a community that's interdependent. We were made to walk with God. We were made with need. Christian anthropology is that every single person needs. To be a Christian, to come to God, the only thing you need is need. And so Jacob finally learned that. Jesus actually taught something similar 
Uh, it's different wording. Matthew 19, 23 through 24. Truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God because rich people will be tremendously tempted to believe that they are independent, that they are self-sufficient. They believe that they can make a lot happen for themselves. And when they can't, they can just pay someone else to make it happen for them. And that's dangerous. Jesus warns us. Jacob's story warns us. You can't enter the kingdom of God. You can't enter the promised land unless you admit your need. And if you're here, you are most likely rich living in Silicon Valley. You most likely are tempted to think that you can make a lot happen for yourself. That's a dangerous position to be in. To come to Jesus, you need to be aware of your need. Only those who rely on God will enter the promised land. Only those who cling to God, cry out in desperation, bless me, I need your blessing. You need God's gracious blessing. Nothing else will do. And so only those who cry out to him for it, receive it and rest in it, get to enter the promised land. Then one more brief takeaway on this point. The Christian life is often described as a walk. But don't forget that you walk with God with a limp, like Jacob. We're limping toward the promised land. And so what is your limp? We all have one. We have, most likely have more than one. We have thorns in our sides. We have weaknesses. We have struggles. We have sorrows. We all suffer. We all walk with some sort of limp. And so what's yours? There's no sense of pretending that you don't have one, because Jesus is said to be the great physician, and he only accepts appointments with people who walk with a limp. If you don't walk with a limp, then you don't need the doctor. But if you want to spend time with Jesus, you got to own that you have a limp. The only people without limps are liars, lying to God, lying to others, maybe even lying to themselves. We all have a limp. So there's no sense in hiding it. He wants you with your limp because that's the real you. Okay, now that we've understood Jacob's story from a cheater and a deceiver who lies to his aging and blind father, turning into a striver, a self-made man who finally meets his match in God and realizes that he won't get one ounce of blessing until he relents and cries out, for something he can't get for himself, God's blessing. Now, we're ready to get back to our original passage from Genesis 48 and the end of Jacob's life. And so let's move on to our final point, giving. What is the uh, most unfair thing that has happened to you? You know, when you reflect back on your life, what is a moment or instance where you feel like you were treated unfairly and you just get angry thinking about it? For me, as I've shared with many of you before, it's when Holly and I had our bikes stolen. Just moved to the Bay Area, lived here like two weeks. I go out to the carport one morning to pick up Holly from the airport, and next to two of the posts of the carport on the ground were snap chains. Our bikes were gone. Someone had come by in the middle of the night with bolt cutters, snapped them, and stolen our bikes. And it felt so violating. I felt so 
angry. It felt so unfair. Why me? Why us? What did we do to deserve that? We're finally back to our original Genesis 48 passage about Jacob, and something unfair seems to happen here. Did you catch it when I was reading it earlier? In Genesis 48, we're finally at the end of Jacob's life, and he's in a new position. He's not trying to steal a blessing. He's not striving for a blessing. He's giving a blessing. His life is almost over, and he has a blessing to give. And what happens is Joseph, one of Jacob's sons, Joseph brings two of his sons, two of Jacob's grandsons, to Jacob, now called Israel, but I'm going to keep calling him Jacob to avoid confusion. And Jacob sees his two grandsons and kisses them and embraces them and says to Joseph, I never expected to see your face, and behold, God has let me see your offspring also. We're going to talk more about Joseph next week, but in case you're unfamiliar, Joseph's brothers sold him into slavery, which is why Jacob never expected to see his face again. And so Joseph positions his two sons before Jacob. Manasseh, the older brother, is put in front of Jacob's right hand, and Ephraim, the younger brother, is put in front of Jacob's left hand. And that's the normal positioning, because Jacob would normally, in that culture, bless the older brother with his right hand and the younger brother with the left. The right hand and the older brother being tied to the more prominent blessing. But then Jacob pulls a fast one. He does not bless the sons as Joseph expects, and instead he crosses his arms. And with the right hand, he gives the primary blessing to Ephraim, the younger brother, and with his left hand, he gives the secondary blessing to Manasseh, the older brother. And Joseph is like, whoa, 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 you must be confused, old man. Manasseh is the older brother. Jacob responds in verse 19, I know, my son, I know. He shall also become a people, and he shall also be great, but nevertheless, the younger shall be greater than the older. Jacob knows exactly what he's doing. As a contrast to Isaac, who unwittingly blessed Jacob, his younger son, Jacob now, even though he's old, even though he's nearly blind, he knows exactly what he's doing. He's giving the younger brother the greater blessing. And so he puts Ephraim before Manasseh. And that doesn't seem fair, right? Like, if you were Manasseh, wouldn't you feel slighted? Wouldn't you feel like you deserved the prominent blessing? I mean, Esau, he sold his birthright, so that's his fault. But Manasseh, what did he do? Why shouldn't he get the blessing that the older brother deserves? It doesn't seem fair. And the reality is that it's not fair. It's not. But it's not unfair because Manasseh deserves the blessing more than Ephraim. It's unfair because no one deserves any blessing. It's a gift. It's a blessing. It's undeserved. That's the nature of grace, God giving undeserved blessing. Reliant K, a Christian punk rock band from my high school days that I never expected to be quoting in a sermon, they have a song with a line in it, uh, or a reflection quote, actually, um, that sums this up perfectly. The beauty of grace is that it makes life not fair. The beauty of grace is that it makes life not fair. 
You see, we are quick to say when we think that life is not fair, when we think that life has not been fair to us, but if you're a Christian, if you're in Christ, it's true that life has not been fair, but it's not fair in your favor. You have been the beneficiary of life not being fair because you've received God's blessing and grace. You didn't deserve that. It's not fair that you get it, but you do get it. And so Jacob, by faith, blesses Ephraim before Manasseh. The younger will be treated as greater than the older. Why? Well, Jacob has learned at this point what God is like. And he's seen how God works. And as he has this blessing to pass on, God doesn't even need to tell him what to do. Just like God chose for Jacob, the younger brother, to receive the blessing, Jacob in his last days knows the blessing should be passed on to the younger of Joseph's two sons. But again, why? Why has God chosen to work like that? You've noticed that, right? God often seems to choose the younger. Abel, younger, chosen over Cain. Isaac, younger, chosen over Ishmael. Jacob over Esau, Joseph over Reuben, and now Ephraim over Manasseh, younger over older. Why? So said before, God's kingdom is upside down. The first are last, and the last are first in God's kingdom. In a world where the older always got the double portion, God said, let's change that for my people. The younger is often going to get the double portion. The younger is going to be blessed, not the older. And God makes himself known time and time again by choosing people that the world would not expect. Israel as a nation, for example, God explicitly says to them in Deuteronomy 7 that he did not choose them because they were a great nation. He chose them because they were one of the smallest nations. 1 Corinthians 1, Paul says it like this, God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Why does God do things like bless the younger and not the older? So that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And instead, all glory will go to God because he brings about amazing things from the places that an unbelieving world looked at and said, that's impossible. Nothing good can come from there. I guess this is just a sermon about my high school music uh, listening. John Foreman, band Switchfoot, has a song where he calls this the beautiful letdown. He says, we are a beautiful letdown, painfully uncool, the church of the dropouts, the losers, the sinners, the failures, and the fools. You ever feel like any of those things? You ever feel painfully uncool? Do you ever feel awkward? Do you ever feel like a dropout, like a loser, a sinner, a failure, a fool, weak, low, poor, small, dumb, immature? You ever feel like that? And you're in the right place. You are in the prime position to receive God's blessing. You're in prime position to be used by God, to be transformed by God, like Jacob, and to, by faith, pass on that blessing to other painfully uncool people. But if, on the other hand, you're here and you think that you are pretty cool, you think you're not awkward, you're not a dropout, you graduated two times, three times, maybe four times, you're not a loser, you're a winner. 
You're not a sinner. You're righteous. You're not a failure. You're a success. You're not a fool. You're smart. You're not weak. You're strong. You're not beneath other people. You're above them. You're not small. You're big. You're not dumb. You're smart. You're not immature. You're mature. If that's you, I have news for you. You're not. And I hope one day you'll see that you're not. You're not cool. Jesus is cool. Jesus is cool enough to hang out with awkward people like you. You're not smart, but Jesus is smart, smart enough to hang out with fools like you. You're not strong. Jesus is strong, strong enough to hang out with weak people like you. You're not rich. Jesus is rich, rich enough to hang out with poor people like you. Get the picture. Are, uh, are any of you oldest sibling in your family? you got Ezra, Isabel, I'm sure some other of you oldest in your family. I'm the oldest in my family. I have one younger sister. I'm the older brother. It's challenging being the oldest, right? Uh, and not just because God keeps giving our blessing away to our younger siblings, but it's hard to be the oldest sibling, right? There's a lot more pressure on you. You have people looking up to you, but who do you look up to? You have to pave your own path. You know all too well how much of your life you're forced to walk by faith, not knowing exactly where you're going. But there's good news even for us older siblings. It's good news for everyone. When you trust in Christ, you get adopted into a new family, God's family. And when you're adopted into God's family, do you know what you get? An older brother. Jesus becomes your older brother when you get adopted into his family. And Jesus is the best older brother that you could possibly have. He goes through everything first. One of the toughest things about being the oldest is that you're going to grow up not really knowing how to do anything. You just have to figure it out as you go. How do I go on a date with someone? How do I, what do I study in college? How do I pick a major? Where do I go work? Who do I pick to marry? How do I start a family? If you're the oldest, you just kind of have to figure it out on your own. Jesus has actually paved a much more difficult path for you already. A lot more difficult than college or relationships or babies. Jesus has paved for you a path through death and resurrection. You think facing a college choice alone is hard? Try facing your own death alone. But you don't have to because Jesus has already been there and done that. He's done it and he's told us that there's nothing to be afraid of. On the other side of death is life, a resurrection. So we can follow in our older brother's footsteps. But second, Jesus is the best older brother anyone could possibly have because he, as the older brother in God's family, he is entitled to the double portion of the blessing. He's entitled to all of it. He's perfectly righteous. He's God's only begotten son. He deserves the entire blessing. But unlike the brothers in Genesis who will sometimes kill for the blessing, instead of claiming it for himself, Jesus gives it away. Jesus gives his blessing away to his younger brothers and sisters. He joyfully has given his blessing to you. Do you see that? You get all the benefits of the older brother in God's family. You get Jesus' righteousness. You get his inheritance. You get eternal life. When God looks at you, he treats you like you're his oldest son. 
He treats you like you're Jesus. Because Jesus is the best older brother who willingly gives away his blessing to you. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we praise you and thank you for your grace, your mercy, and your blessings that you give to us. Father, we confess that we, at times, are cheaters and deceivers. We, at times, try to strive and become self-made, self-sufficient people. But, Lord, we need you. We need your blessing. We thank you, Father, that your Son, Jesus Christ, has denied all his own rights so that we could take on the blessing deserved by the older brother. We pray, Lord, that by your Spirit, that truth we take root in our hearts and transform us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.